I did mute myself. Tough. My bad, Jeff. Or is that Mike back there? That is Mikey. My fault. That's on me. Uh, good morning, Springvale. Ooh. A scourge of flies has befallen us. All right. Uh, if you're wondering, uh, I am not Dustin. Uh, we are supposed to be con- continuing on in our series in the Ten Commandments. So if you're really excited about that, I am very sorry to disappoint. But we will come back to it uh, shortly. We haven't forgot about that series uh, in uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, but today we're going to take a little bit of a break. Before I get started, let's pray. Father, we give you praise. Indeed, great is your faithfulness. Lord, we just heard about the incredible faithfulness you demonstrated to this church over the past 175 years. So Lord, we thank you for how you have been at work uh, at this corner of Kennedy and Stouffville Road. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, uh, that we would allow it to penetrate through to our hearts and allow it to make the life change you would have us make. So Father, we give you glory um, and ask that you would anoint the lips of your servants so that I might be able to proclaim your truth and your gospel for your fame. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Procrastination. Procrastination station. Do you like procrastinating? I love a good procrastinate. It feels great, right? The dishes, tomorrow. Uh, Yard work, I hate that. Weeds, tomorrow. I'll deal with it later. I love tomorrow Lester. He's that magical person that gets everything done. Yesterday Lester, that guy's a jerk. But tomorrow, Lester, superhero. In fact, I imagine a lot of you probably have tomorrow, whatever your name is, right? And you love to put whatever it is off to tomorrow. It feels great, but there's just one problem with tomorrow. The consequences of our actions. Because when we fail to plan, we plan to fail. Did I get that right? When we fail to plan, we plan to fail. I nailed, let's go. I've been up since 5.30, so... Bear with me. All right. But this morning, our sermon uh, and our passage is going to be talking about that very thing, planning to fail. We find ourselves this morning in 2 Samuel 11. This is that famous story. If you don't have your Bible, or if you do have your Bible, follow along with me, 2 Samuel 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. I'm sorry there are no slides. This was a bit of a last minute thing, so uh, bear with me. Pray for, pray for me as I'm, I'm speaking to you. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking Uh, and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent the messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Pause right here. 
I am sure you have heard this story before. In fact, there's a famous song about it. It's, pretty, it's, it's kind of pretty. You should listen to it. But this story is very famous. And typically when we read this story, we get caught up in some interesting questions, right? We think to ourselves, what the heck is David doing on his roof? Why is he walking around on the roof? And then we go to Bathsheba. How dare she take a bath on the roof? Which is a terrible interpretation, by the way. Nowhere does it say that Bathsheba is bathing on the roof. Notice what it says in, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse two. Uh, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. This is not like she's up on the roof taking a bath. She is bathing and David sees her from the roof. So let's be clear about that, first of all, that we're not blaming Bathsheba for this whole incident. But then our mind goes to other questions like, oh, if, what if David hadn't walked on the roof right when she was taking a bath? What an unfortunate circumstance. What, what an unfortunate uh, situation that he finds himself in. And that's kind of how we think about David oftentimes, right? David is this wonderful character in the Old Testament that really is almost, uh, my, my, my Hebrew professor in a seminary called him the Teflon man. Teflon as in like non-stick. Nothing bad ever sticks to this guy. It's always like he's so righteous, right? We read about him as he's being chased around by Saul. We read about him as he's fighting Goliath, right? These are all incredible things. He brings Israel to the height of its power. All of this is David. Not only this, but David is also supposed to be a representation of Jesus who is to come later, right? David is this Teflon guy who is our hero in almost every story and in almost every story we are not David we're not supposed to be David David is supposed to represent for us the coming king Jesus but right here in 2nd Samuel 11 we are David finally we are David and it is tough but all of these kind of questions that we ask ourselves are really the wrong question. Why do I know that that's the wrong question? Because the narrator tells us that that's the wrong question to be asking. The key verses are the first couple verses. The, the, the first couple verses that we love to skip over because they don't mean a lot to us. They tell us about time and stuff like that. Who cares? But actually, it's the most critical verse. It says, in the spring of the year, should be alarm bells, but he presses into this, the narrator does, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sends Joab. Whoa. The time in the spring, so you know, oh, uh, an ancient Israelite would know, oh, David should be going out to battle. As if you didn't know that, he goes, when the kings go out to battle, and David, David's still sitting at home. And then as though you still don't know, he, he goes on to say, David sends Joab, hello, and then he, he goes on, by the end of the verse, he says, but David remained at Jerusalem. He really drives that point home. Four times he emphasizes to you, the reader or the listener, David stayed home. When every king, every other king goes out to battle, David stayed home. 
Now, remember, this is David at the height of his power. He is established on his throne. This is not David running and hiding in the caves. This is David in Jerusalem at the height of his power. He is relaxed. He is at home. So, what the narrator is trying to tell you here is that the situation David finds himself in is no accident. David planned for failure. When every king goes out to battle, he stays home. When all the men in Jerusalem, all the important men are going out to battle and all the wives are at home, who's staying home? David stays home. It's not as though he accidentally got on his roof accidentally took a walk and then accidentally happened to see a pretty lady in the window. No, 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 none of that. David planned for failure. He does this on purpose. This is no accident. It goes on to say, notice this, it's really cool the details that the narrator saves for us. He, he asks, oh, who might that be? And the messenger says to him this thing, worded very carefully. It says, is not this Bathsheba? Says it by first name. Is not this. Notice the kind of awkward phrase, like you should know who this is. Then he goes, the daughter of Eliam, who you should know, right? But then he also, the messenger also says, the wife of Uriah, you know who this is. And then reinforces to him, she is married as you know. And what does David do? Continues on. It's no accident, friends. It's not happenstance. When we make these kinds, when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations, it's not an accident. See, the problem isn't when we come to our sin, the problem isn't that we find ourselves in a moment of weakness. Men, for example, we don't find ourselves accidentally alone with our phones or whatever late at night, watching things we should not be watching. That is no accident, friends. We set ourselves up for those failures. When we find ourselves in compromising situations and having relationships and friendships that are maybe a little bit more than friendships, those are no accidents. Adultery isn't some kind of accident that you fell into. Friends, it is a situation that you've planned to fail in. That's what happens. That's what happens with David. And that's what happens with us. Because Planning or failing to plan is planning to fail. So it brings me to Christian habits. How do we plan for success? It comes in our Christian habits. It comes when we have proper spiritual disciplines in the areas of prayer, word, worship, mission, community, generosity. But what do we love to do with these kinds of habits? Prayer, word, in the morning, I'm tired. I don't want to read my Bible for for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes this morning. I'm tired. Let me hit the snooze button. I will do it 
tomorrow? What happens with our giving? What happens with our generosity? I'm a little tight in my bank account this month. I will give next month. What happens with our evangelism when we're supposed to share the gospel with our friends, family, neighbors? I'll have an opportunity next time. We procrastinate and we fail to plan because we plan to fail. See, it's not the moment that was too big for us. It was that we didn't do the little things to set ourselves up for success when we had time to plan for proper Christian habits and disciplines. Going on from this, how about some of our accountability practices? Who are the people in our lives that are keeping us in check? Are we involved in Christian community or are we thinking to ourselves that we are just gonna do this on our own? This is why life groups is so important because it gives us people that we can, uh, we can have in our community to keep us accountable to the things that we have decided that we are going to do. So it, it moves me on to the next couple verses in, uh, in our passage this morning. So uh, Bathsheba, oh, sorry, back up there real quick for a second. And just so you know that this is definitely David's child, in brackets, it says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. This is a detail that's critically important that the narrator drops in brackets. It's so important that he decides to drop it. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, well, every time I take a bath, I'm purifying myself from my uncleanness. You don't purify yourself from your uncleanness every time you take a bath? That, I thought that was the goal of taking a bath purifying ourselves from our uncleanness. But this is actually a Hebrew idiom to say that she was coming, uh, like at the end of her menstrual cycle, she is supposed to ritualistically purify herself. So that bath was her ritual, uh, ritualistic purifying after her menzies, which means that she just had her period, which means she was not previously pregnant. Her husband is away. So who else could possibly have had this child, could she have had this child with? Only David. So it's clear as day in your mind that this is David, David's sin. But anyway, going on from there, David leans into this when she tells him he, uh, she's pregnant, right? So uh, she says, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Huge words. Verse six goes, David's very next actions are, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, right? So instead of going to Bathsheba and apologizing and then going to Uriah and confessing, he, he does this. He brings Uriah in. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going, right? Uriah is all like, wait, you brought me in for that? Don't you have other messengers that do exactly this? Why am I here for this? Right? So then David kind of plays it up and he goes, you know, I, yeah, how's it going, man? How, you know, go home. Enjoy your rest. I love Uriah's response to David. Uriah can't be like, no, this is ridiculous. I'm not, I'm, I'm going back. He, he, says, to, he says to David uh, in verse 11, when he doesn't go home, 
He says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwells in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Wonderful response here. He cannot go to his king and go, the thing you are doing is lazy and is wrong, right? David's gonna kill him. I mean, he gets killed anyway, but that's, sorry. Spoiler alert, he does get killed. Uh, But he can't go to his king and just call him out like that. So what does he do? He goes, no, I, I have to be vigilant. I have to be on duty. But what he's subtly doing is saying to David, what are you doing here? Why are you at home? When all of us are in the field, going to battle, Why are you here? Which brings up a whole other point. Does Uriah know the thing that David has done? Does he actually know? Think about this. Think about it for a minute, right? David has all sorts of other unimportant messengers for him to send back and forth between the battlefield and Jerusalem. Uriah must be thinking to himself, why has he sent me? Then he gets all the way back and David just kind of wants to shoot the breeze. Why me? Why is David so insistent about sending, my, or sending me home to see my wife? Why? Why did David not come out to battle? All of these questions must be swirling in Uriah's head. Ultimately, we don't know if Uriah knows or not, and I'm not saying he did know, but it is possible that he does know. And this brings up the important point that when we sin, that same feeling happens to us. See that tension that David is feeling? David the whole time is thinking to himself, how am I gonna gonna hide this so that Uriah doesn't know? Does Uriah know? Uriah has to know. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe I've hit it well. Maybe if I get him drunk, then he won't think about it. That's all David is thinking about it. In the same way, when we sin, we've got to tell a lie, then another lie, and a lie to cover that lie but it's also got to be supported by two other lies so that this fourth lie and maybe that fifth final like overarching lie will sell it to everybody. And the whole time we're thinking to ourselves, they're going to find out. Are they going to know? They're going to know. They're going to find out. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do when they find out? Oh my goodness, right? So this is, this is the, that kind of ballooning effect of sin. Instead of confessing when he should have, acknowledging the wrong that he did, he balloons. Right, he, makes, he stacks another sin on top of another sin. Think about the sins that David has stacked on top of each other. First, he has, he has lusted after another man's wife. Second, he may have committed uh, sexual assault. It's possible, right? What is it, when, when, when he calls for Bathsheba to come, what is she gonna say to her king? No. When he, the king, wants to lay with her, what's she gonna go? No. What power does she have? Then from there, instead of kind of stopping that, he commits also, he ruins the sanctity of their marriage, but he goes on from there and he sends Uriah back to the front lines and get this, not only does he send Uriah back to the front lines, but he sends Uriah with a letter, a letter to Joab with instructions to leave Uriah himself at the front lines and kind of pull back from him. And that way he gets himself killed. So not only does, uh, does David commit lust, maybe rape, 
adultery. Now he's murdered too. And he also, he had the audacity to send that letter with the guy he was going to murder. That's the kind of guy we're talking about this morning. But it goes on from there. Not only does Uriah get murdered, the guys around Uriah get murdered too. Notice at the end, it says, uh, when Joab gets this done, uh, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you, finished, uh, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why do you go so near to the city, so on and so forth, uh, you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So when, when David gets really mad about all the soldiers who have died because of his own lie, then you're gonna say to him also, Uriah has also died, which begs the question, which is the wrong way to use that phrase, but whatever, which brings up the question, does Joab know? Joab also must know, right? This is what happens when we sin. We think we're doing a good job of hiding it. We are most definitely not. When we stack lie on top of other lie, on top of other lie, it becomes, it catches up. It becomes so apparent. So we've talked about some of, some of the consequences for Uriah, some of the consequences for, um, from, for some of the soldiers around Uriah, but also there's consequences for Bathsheba. She now loses her husband, right? Because of one man's sin, because of David's sin, all of these characters who had nothing to do with the original sin become afflicted, become affected, this is what happens when we sin. We think our sin is just me, myself, and I. That's not true, friends. Our sin affects the people around us. It just does. Going on from there though, remember the child that David and Bathsheba conceived by this illegitimate means. That child goes on to die because God is upset with David that child dies too. Those, those actions have consequences. However, there is a silver lining to this story. In Matthew 1, it says, uh, 1 verse 6, it says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Interesting, interesting phrasing there. Why does he say that? Why does the writer of Matthew say, by the wife of Uriah? It's to remind us where A, Solomon comes from. Solomon is that very next child that David and Bathsheba conceive. But also it's to remind us that God never accepted this. God did not accept that David took Uriah's wife. Bathsheba here is always acknowledged as Uriah's wife. Not David's wife, Uriah's wife. But it goes on from there. There's, there's, there's something that's more important than that still. And that is that here we're talking about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us. And what God is saying in this situation is that, yes, I see your sin, but my grace is greater still. Friends, when we fall short, when God, oh man, it's like stuck in my hair, these flies, wild. All right, anyway, when we sin, that's gonna bother me so much. 
All right, forgive me. But when we sin, God's grace abounds still. Oh man, unreal. There it is. All right. When we sin, God's grace abounds even still, right? It's about acknowledging that we have sinned, but believing that Jesus Christ had died for our sin and see committing to being reformed into the image of Christ that we were meant to be. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news, friends, is that God's grace and mercy is greater still. So we don't need to hide in that sin. We don't need to hide in that shame of trying to stack lie upon lie upon lie, trying to cover up our sin. Because look right here, there it is. God's grace is greater than our sin. And if God can save a person who has committed lust, who has committed maybe rape, who has committed adultery, who has murdered multiple people, then God can forgive us too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, mercy, and love. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that uh, when we turn to you, Lord, you can make us new, that you can restore our relationship with you. So Father, help us install healthy habits in our lives. Help us to draw near to you as we read your word and commune with you in prayer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.